Renewable fuel is nothing new. More than two decades of innovation in renewables power every drop of Neste Mine, the first of its kind to be top-tier certified, reducing GHG emissions with a fuel made from 100% renewable raw materials. So if you're ready for a way forward, we'll lead the way. Run on Neste Mai Renewable Diesel. Welcome to Drilling Deep. I'm your host, John Kingston. If this podcast is hacked, I have just the person to help fix it. It's Anton Banks, and he's our guest in a few minutes. He's one of the cybersecurity experts at the National Motor Freight Traffic Association, and that LTL-based group just had a conference on trucking cybersecurity that I attended in Houston. He's going to be here to talk about the issue and what he learned at that gathering. And let's not forget that we call the podcast Drilling Deep because we kick things off by talking about oil and diesel, and you need to drill to get oil. So Drilling Deep it is. Let's talk about diesel inventories. The general consensus is that inventories have been tight. And the most visible piece of that data out there, the most visible data out there, is the weekly report on inventories released by the Energy Information Administration of the Department of Energy. The latest figure on ultra-low sulfur diesel inventories is that at the end of last week, they stood at about 101 million barrels. And without bombarding you with lots of data, I can tell you that there's good news and bad news. The good news is that's more diesel in inventories than there were a year ago. The bad news is that for the final full week of October, it's way below where it has been pretty much every year going back a long way. But in many ways, that's the only figure out there that's showing especially tight inventories. Earlier this week, oil giant BP released its earnings. The interim CEO at BP, Murray Auchincloss, hope I pronounced that right, Auchincloss, I guess it is, uh, talked about diesel supplies. He said that as the market moved into fall in late August, September, and October, it had seen an, that company had seen an oversupply of refined products, including diesel and gasoline. He also described those inventories as quite high. We've talked before about market structure and its relationship to inventories. When inventories are tight, the market will be set up in a structure called backwardation, where the most expensive barrel out there is the front month. Prices go down as we go out the calendar. So if December barrels are the front month on a commodity exchange and there's a backwardation, January will be cheaper than December, February will be cheaper than January, and so on. It's not that the market is predicting that prices will fall. It's saying that the barrel that can, that can get delivered as soon as possible is the most valuable one out there. When that structure develops, it's a big disincentive to store barrels. So a backwardation usually signals tight inventories. But look at what's happened to the spread between front month and second month ultra-low sulfur diesel on the CME Commodity Exchange. At the start of August, that spread was about $0.26 cents per gallon. That means that September barrels, which were the, the front month at that point, were priced $0.26, more, 26 cents more than October barrels. And by the way, that is a huge spread. On Wednesday of this week, the spread was about $0.07 cents per gallon, and with December, with December barrels more than January. 
That is a significant move over three months. It would normally be seen as reflecting a much more favorable inventory situation with more barrels in storage. That's in direct conflict with the EIA data. But let's just point out that the EIA numbers are not infallible, and one might argue that the market is infallible. The argument would be that there is no way the spread between the first month and second month diesel contracts could move in by 20 cents over three months if, in fact, inventories had not become more plentiful, regardless of what the EIA might say. The EIA also is just the U.S. It isn't the whole world. But S&P Global Commodities, Ins Commodities Insights publishes data on distillates like diesel from the key storage location of Fujairah in the Middle East, and they are lower, too, than they were a few months ago. It could be that the interim CEO of BP is seeing things that various statistics are not picking up yet. The market seems to be suggesting more diesel in storage in other ways as well. For example, if you take the price of ultra-low sulfur diesel on CME, and compare it to Brent crude, it stands at about, as I record this, at about 90 to 95 cents per gallon, though it has been below that recently. At the start of October, it was close to $1.10, another sign of diesel weakness. Do you know how lucky oil consumers have been with weather, especially diesel consumers? We had a warm winter last year. We had effectively no impact from hurricanes hitting the U.S. oil sector this year. And now hurricane season is basically over. And now there are some market signals that maybe there's a bit more diesel in inventories than some major public data might suggest. That's all good news for diesel consumers going into winter. This message comes from Neste My Renewable Diesel, approved by leading manufacturers and the first fuel of its kind to be top tier certified, made from 100% renewable raw materials. Make the switch by visiting nestemide.com. Moving on now here at Drilling Deep, the National Motor Freight Association uh, has started to take a really prominent role in the battle over cybersecurity attacks against the trucking industry. I was able to attend their recent conference, the recent two-day conference in Houston on the issue of cybersecurity. And of course, that happened right on the heels of two pretty well-known cyber attacks in the trucking and logistics industry. One was against Orbcom, a, uh, an ELD provider, and the other was against, of course, Estes Express, an LTL company like the companies that make up the uh, NM NF NMFTA. And so the timing really couldn't have been more, really more impeccable. <laughs> um, one of the key presenters at the conference and in the battle against cybersecurity was Anton, is when was Anton Banks. He is the fairly new director of enterprise security at the MF. NMFTA, and uh, he was front and center at the conference last week, and we're really, really pleased to have him join us today on Drilling Deep. Anton, welcome. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here. So so why don't you talk about your role at NM NMFTA and your background in cybersecurity? Well, I start with my background. Uh, I'm retired military, retired lieutenant colonel uh, in the Army. Uh, I did cybersecurity in the Army, first half of my career, telecommunications, uh, the last 12 years was cybersecurity. Uh, before coming to the NMFTA, I was the um, cybersecurity director for the Rapid Transit Authority in Atlanta, the rail system in Atlanta. Uh, our mission uh, at NM NMFTA is to uh, educate, do research, and educate uh, our members on cybersecurity. 
Um, my team is, we have three members on my team, um, Ben Gardner and uh, Ann. Uh, we concentrate on truck, heavy truck security. Uh, and my job is to bring uh, a little bit more focus on the enterprise security. Uh, because of my background, I do know that hackers tend to uh, compromise a system. They have hide in that system for, you know, they could hide up to 177 days, hop around till they find the crown jewels or a system that another network trusts and they'll use that that uh, trust relationship from the enterprise and hang out, hop out to the trucks. So uh, we're doing all things trucks and we're doing now all things enterprise when it comes to cybersecurity. Yeah, let's let's note that difference because there were two tracks at the conference. One was enterprise when somebody tries to hack a whole company. And the other is was it was a truck? I don't know if it was, I remember it was called a a truck fleet, uh, yeah, line. Oh, right, uh, and that we yeah, have fleets, right? And that's where the hack tries to come in through the trucks, which of course are completely connected to various networks, be it through telematics. Yeah, we uh, we had two tracks because in the past we were pretty pretty much heavily focused on the fleets. We were doing um, you know hacking into the you know the CAN bus. Uh, a, a lot of the uh, the trucking networks, um, but because of my background, I do know and understand that um, you know the enterprise is vulnerable, and those networks, uh, the trucks, are starting to put more and more communications equipment inside the trucks, and so now the trucks are connected to the internet. They're connected back to the enterprise, and so um, today is kind of separate. I, I kind of envision in the future that it will. It may merge into one track because there's so much internet connectivity between the trucks and the uh, enterprise that you have to uh, protect it, that whole system, that whole ecosystem, uh, you know, uh, as a whole versus separate. Uh, but right now we're doing it separate. Uh, I have a research team that's doing the trucks and then I'm focusing on the enterprise. What really kind of struck me about the meeting, it was only two days, was that on the first day there was a lot of talk about you know, stuff that was almost kind of like, you know, make sure you brush your teeth before you go to bed at night. You know, change your passwords. Um, make your, Don't make your passwords too simple. Uh, don't click on links that you shouldn't. And I thought that we really need to come to Houston for this. I figured there was something more to come, right? And then I went to, I, didn't, I wasn't able to make the last session, but the next to last session when that was uh, run by Ben Gardner, who was your colleague, and an, an incredible degree of complexity that he spoke about the projects that the National Motor Freight Association are working on, and the complexity of how fleets can be targeted by the cyber criminals. So we went from, you know, change your password to a really amazing degree of, of, of high technological ability, really ability on the, on the part of the hackers and ability on the part of the companies that are trying to thwart that. Now, that really is kind of the stretch of what you're dealing with, real simple stuff all the way down to real complexity, correct? Yeah, you, you know, it is surprising that people are still falling for phishing emails, uh, mainly because the uh, because of artificial intelligence, uh, machine learning, the attackers are getting more and more advanced, and you know they, they constantly change the game. Uh, but again, phishing is still the the number one way hackers get in. Ninety percent of all hacking uh, compromises take place through spear phishing, uh, and then the rest uh, through a uh, some kind of misconfiguration of a network. So. It's always important to uh, reemphasize that to our audience, to our leadership, so they they can go back to their organization and continue to train their employees. I think what you heard was uh, one of the number one thing was train your users, you, you, the low hanging fruit. Train your users because that is the weakest link. Uh, 
Ben did touch on some projects that we have going. Some of them are kind of, uh, I'm, I'm going to call it post hole because I believe they're going to turn into uh, things that are sensitive in nature a little bit later. Uh, but we do have some projects that I'm excited about. Because of my background, I look at things from a cyber warfare perspective, and I think like, um, I think a nation state um, would would think and to try to hit our uh, supply chain. And so I'm looking at it from a very high level nation state attack uh, on our supply chain. When you walked out of that meeting and you spent a couple of days with people who are in the in the business of cybersecurity at trucking companies, how good did you feel? Uh, do, do you feel that a lot of companies out there are ready? I mean, ultimately, this is a small, I, I understand you had a sold out meeting, but yet still, it's a small slice of what's out there. But based on what you heard there, you got some smart people working in there. Do you, do you really feel, you talked about cyber warfare, you're a lieutenant colonel. Did you really feel like this is an industry ready to go to war? Well, I, what I heard uh, was across the spectrum. I heard some people saying, uh, I didn't know that. That's a surprise to me. I didn't know I had these resources available. And then I heard some people like, yeah, this made me feel good. We are doing uh, what we're supposed to do, but I did learn this a little bit. I did learn that a little bit. I could take these uh, these items back. Um, I would say across the uh, the industry, what I'm seeing, it's a mixed bag. Uh, we had Estes at our conference right when they got hacked, and they got up and left. And I think you and I talked, and I said, hey, it's a little, a little early to judge them, but let's see how quick they recover. The fact that they recovered so fast leads me to believe that they had to act together. Because it's, it's not if, it's when. And the measuring stick is how quick you get back to operations. Uh, and I think they got back uh, to operations fairly quick. Uh, so, you know, without doing the whole details, uh, I could give them a, a B or a, uh, a grade because they got back, you know, fairly quick. Yeah, that, I mean, that was interesting to me. I'm not a cybersecurity expert, of course, but, uh, you know, from talking to some of the people down in Houston, they, they had a lot of praise for how well they did. And, and in part, one thing that was brought up was that they, they obviously couldn't get their web page up completely right off the bat, but they got up that little portal, that communications portal. So you didn't have to call your representative that you could send them a note. Couldn't do it through standard email, but you could send it through this portal. And I heard a lot of praise for that. Yeah, you know, you, you kind of sort of, you know, when you're in the middle of an incident, prioritize um, what you want to bring up. You know, you know, I think you heard at the conference, we talked about RPO and RTO, recovery point objectives, re recovery time objective. And then you got to prioritize what system you want to bring up. So bringing, bringing up a whole entire website may have been lonely and priority, but just being able to communicate to their customers, uh, to their partners, um, you know, could have been a priority. And so that portal was important. But I think the main thing is they needed to get their back-end systems up, their dispatch systems, payroll systems, things of that nature. Uh, and, and I think they got up pretty pretty, pretty quick. Um, let me ask you, uh, okay, Antonis, is every cyber attack a completely debilitating attack like the Estes one uh, where, you know, it's either kind of all or nothing, they get in there and they shut down everything or... Are there things out there that might be considered sort of partial cyber attacks? Yeah, they, they're not the same. There's no cookie cutter uh, cyber attack. You have some cyber attacks that'll just get in and just steal information. They want to steal credit cards. They want to steal uh, employee data and then uh, uh, threaten to leak that information if you don't uh, pay them a ransom. You have some that are that are ransomware that can hit the entire network. But if the company has good network segmentation, 
uh, pretty much envision a house with no walls or no doors and an attacker could get in and just move through the house. Um, without those walls and doors, they, they have complete unfettered access to the, the entire organization. But if a company has good network segmentation, meaning they have doors, they have walls, they have locks, then you can contain that ransomware to a particular part of that network. So uh, it just depends on what the attacker uh, is looking for. It depends on the uh, controls that the company has in place and the tools that can detect the attack, um, you know, before it happens. Uh, I like to preach something called, uh, and it's a military term, uh, defense in depth, where you have tools that uh, if they get past one tool, another tool will trip them up. And so if a company has a good uh, defense in depth setup, then, you know, they can probably catch the uh, attacker before they can just totally own the entire network. Now you mentioned ransomware. First of all, why would a, an attack be not ransomware? What, what, what's the point of, of attacking a company and then not demanding ransom? And secondly, I did hear from multiple speakers, don't pay ransom, don't pay ransom. But we know ransom often gets paid. Um, my understanding is it probably gets paid more often than it doesn't. So first of all, are there, are, what, what attacks are not ransomware and why would you not demand ransom? And secondly, how frequently does ransom get paid? So countries like China, they're interested in stealing your intellectual property. So if you have sensitive information, uh, they want to steal your information, uh, intellectual property, go back and beat you to market or either uh, get to market and charge a, a cheaper rate because they didn't have to do the research and development. Uh, other, other criminals will want to get the information so they can blackmail you uh, or, or they can you know, threaten to uh, leak that information out. And they know you're going to... Uh, you may pay because you don't want to uh, lose your reputation or you don't want to deal with a massive lawsuit. So, um, so, so some attackers may do that. Uh, you may catch them before they get a chance to de deploy the ransomware. So that's, that may be another reason why ransomware is not, uh, is not deployed because you catch them as they're snooping around your network. Um, the reason, you know, <laughs> you know, it's kind of the double-edged sword. The FBI tell you not to pay because, you know, the more you pay, the more they're going to come back. Uh, if you have good backups and you can recover, then you don't have a need to pay because you can just you just back your system up and you don't have to pay that ransom. What hackers now do is they when they get in your network, they're going to snoop around. They're going to look for your risk management department or your insurance department and find out if you have a cyber policy. And if your cyber policy is going to pay $5 million, they're going to ask for $5 million. Uh, if you have a million-dollar policy, they're going to ask for a million dollars. So they actually look for those policies so they can get an idea of how much uh, money they, they ask for. So, I mean, it's a, a lot of factors that go into play, whether or not uh, they deploy ransomware, whether or not you catch them, whether or not they're just still looking to steal your secret ingredients or whether or not they just, uh, you know, you're a target of opportunities. Another thing that you're going to see more and more is uh, because of what's happening in the Middle East, uh, you're going to have what we call hacktivists, people that have a political or religious agenda trying to just cause pain on a company uh you know for that political or uh, geopolitical or religious reasons so they may not want to do uh ransomware or they may want to do ransomware but a lot of times they're just looking to see whatever they can find whatever weakness you have they just want to take advantage and exploit that uh that weakness 
Do you think ransomware would be as prevalent if we didn't have cryptocurrency? That that does make uh, the job a lot easier. You don't have to worry about transferring it to a known account, paying a bundle of cash somewhere. I mean, is, is crypto like the hacker's best friend? Uh, it facilitates the payment. Uh, I'm not going to say we wouldn't have ransomware uh, because they would probably figure out another way to get their payment. Uh, it would be certainly easier to trace uh, without uh, cryptocurrency. Now cryptocurrency is, is uh, well, let me say Bitcoin is a lot easier to, to trace. So if you notice uh, with the Colonial Pipeline, they were able to get a lot of that money back. So criminals are now starting to use other types of cryptocurrency. So I say my answer is yes. Uh, the use of cryptocurrency is facilitating the payment of it. So it, it is helping, but I won't say that that's the main cause of ransomware. Do you think we're getting to the point where we're developing a rule of thumb about how much a company should be paying? I mean, it's different. Not paying a ransom, I'm sorry, pay, paying for their cybersecurity. Obviously, you have small companies, you have big companies. Um, and, you know, but, but, but the cyber risks are probably almost the same uh, between a small and a large company. How much you, without putting a dollar number on it, do you have any idea of how much you should, a company should be spending to protect itself? Well, you know, it, again, there's no cookie-cutter cookie solution. Uh, most of the time, uh, and I can't remember the, the figure, uh, but Gardner has a formula that they uh, advertise that you should use about whatever your overall operating budget, uh, your cybersecurity budget should be around 10% of that. Uh, what I like to say from a, as being a formal practitioner is that the company should come together and do what uh, they call a risk assessment and come up with a risk appetite. If you're a small company and you're totally heavily dependent on your IT structure to run your business, and if it becomes um, unusable and it's going to put you out of business, then you may want to go above 10% or I highly recommend you go above it. So you need to determine how much uh, money, um, how much your company depends on your IT uh, structure to operate. Uh, but again, there's no cookie cutter solution. Uh, you just have to determine what your risk appetite is uh, and how much your business depend on the, the, the IT infrastructure. I mean, 10%, I'm not saying it sounds excessive, but I mean, that's, that's 10 cents of every dollar you bring in to your cybersecurity budget. That That's a big number. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, that, that's a big number. And, and, and again, don't hold me to that number. I can't remember uh, Gardner had a report off the top of my head, and I, I I will go back and research it. They had a uh, a, a formula, and it was five or ten percent. I can't remember. It wasn't over ten percent, but it was a certain amount of your 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 operating budget uh, that you needed to uh, spend on uh, uh, cybersecurity. I don't remember what that number that that number is, but I think it should be based off your risk appetite. If you are uh, a company that could easily Go manual, and you didn't, and you can could operate without your IT. Uh, then you know you you don't have to spend as much as a company that's totally dependent. If you're a fintech company and your 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 total operations is depending on uh, you know a, a IT structure, then you need to have redundant systems, uh, backup systems, hot systems that are you know running dual in case one went down. You know you got you need a hundred percent uptime. But if you can afford to be without your IT systems for a week or two, then you don't uh, necessarily have to spend that much. And the same thing with cyber insurance. You know, if if you can do without your systems uh, for a while, then you don't need an extreme cyber policy. But if you're totally dependent on your IT systems, 
then you may uh, need a more expensive uh, cybersecurity policy. And if you hold this conference again next year, let's let's see how good you feel, how confident you are. I mean, what, what do you think will be the state of battle between the good guys and the bad guys? Will the good guys take a few steps forward the next year, or the bad guys are pretty smart, aren't they? Well, what I've seen in my 24-plus years doing cybersecurity is that the bad guys are always a step ahead of us. So even if we take four steps ahead, based on what I've seen in the past, the criminals are going to be five, maybe six steps ahead. Uh, so, uh, we do have some exciting things that, uh, that I'm working on, uh, for, for next year that I think will, um, totally surpass what we did this year. Uh, some, our demo is going to be state of the art, uh, it's going to shock some folks. Uh, we want to do a tabletop where we have a nightmare scenario, um, and walk through that. So I think next year is going to be bigger and better. So you you come in a little, let, let me just say, let's go with what NMFTA does. You you put together solutions and you kind of work with the, your members and say, look, here's how you can handle this. Yeah, we we look for vulnerabilities in the truck network, uh, and then we put published papers to say, hey, we've identified this vulnerability in the network, uh, in the telematics, in the uh, pin connectors, the CAN bus, and then we give them recommended practices to uh, remediate those vulnerabilities. And now, since I'm here, we've been doing the same thing on the enterprise. We've been uh, uh, telling our members about resources that are available uh, from Homeland Security, TSA, uh, FBI, and then we've been uh, putting out newsletters on some best uh, practices as well. Yeah, let's note that at the meeting, you did have representatives from all those government agencies, and they all do have services uh, that can be offered out to companies. Uh, there are though, there are companies though that go out and hire high priced security consultants, are there not? There are. And that's one of the main reasons uh, I brought to the agency. Uh, quick story. Uh, when I was at Marta, uh when I first went there, I was a contractor. There were no cybersecurity people there. Uh, I took those same agencies, uh, CISA, FBI, TSA, and I was able to build a free uh, cybersecurity program with those resources until Marta funded us. So for about uh, four years, I, I ran a, a cyber program with free resources from CISA. Uh And so what I wanted to do was to show our members that they had resources that they could totally use or could augment what they already have um, from federal agencies. The transportation industry is considered critical infrastructure. So the federal government has a vested interest uh, in providing resources to protect that, uh, that supply chain. We want to thank Anton Bank for joining us here today on Drilling Deep. He is the director of enterprise security at the National Motor Freight uh, Trans. Oh, I always get this wrong. Uh, National Motor Freight. And I always forget what the T stands for. Anton, help me out. National Motor Freight Traffic Association. Traffic Association. Okay. I always want to say truck, but anyway, Traffic Association. It is the primary uh, trade organization for the LTL. And they held a really great conference on cybersecurity last week in Houston, where I met Anton. So thanks for joining us here on Drilling Deep. Thanks for having me. You have been watching and listening to Drilling Deep. We are part of the Freight Cash family of podcasts from Freight Waves. You can find us on YouTube if you want to see our shiny faces, or you can hear us on all the major podcast platforms. I've been your host for today, John Kingston, and please join us again. This message comes from Neste My Renewable Diesel, a drop-in replacement for fossil fuel that has the power to keep your fleet running at top performance while lowering greenhouse gas emissions compared to fossil diesel. 
Visit nestemy.com to learn more.